everyone this is american exception and i'm aaron good this is the third installment in our short series on jim hogan's all-time classic secret agenda watergate deep throat and the cia to give everybody an update we do have a plan and a date set to record the peter dale scott jim hogan discussion very soon peter's covid recovery has progressed and he is excited to be able to participate jim himself has been patient and understanding through all of this so that is also really appreciated. In this episode, Seamus and I are going to cover a few areas, including some uh, naughty material related to the Security Research Staff, or SRS, the inner sanctum of the Office of Security, which is itself an inner sanctum of the CIA. So what's inside this occult realm? Apparently, it includes, among other things, some blackmail porn and a, quote, Automatic fucking machine. Seamus McGinnis, we are back again talking more about Watergate. And uh, there's this is a quite a, a uh, labyrinthine subject. And Jim Hogan's book, Secret Agenda, has a whole lot of material in it. So where would you like us to uh, to start? as we delve into all this. Yeah. You know, as, as complex as this topic is, and I guess it's probably not as, as sexy as the JFK assassination at the same time, I think we're really getting into the meat of it here. And in some ways it is just as, if not more lurid than people's favorite things about the JFK assassination. So uh, we talked last time a lot about McCord, one of the burglars. Um, I want to turn to E Howard hunt because the standard Watergate narrative has this sort of Keystone Cops thing going on. It's it's sort of a caper that has this, uh, you know, super incompetent E. Howard Hunt at the middle of it. So, what should we make of Hunt? And was he really retired, as the as the narrative would tell us? Right. It does not appear. I mean, it's a cliche among people that that look into parapolitics that nobody ever really retires from the CIA. So is it a cliche or a truism? I mean, it probably is largely accurate to say that. This Hunt case is one where it matters because his supposed retirement um, is historically important. And Nixon is overheard on the, the tapes and elsewhere. It's uh, discussed how Nixon actually thought that by having Hunt, he was getting leverage on the CIA and so on. And that if they act in, in the smoking gun tape, he even says, like, you uh, mess with Hunt and you uh, you pull back that scab and you uncover a whole lot of nasty stuff. So uh, he's a very fascinating character. Uh, but as you say, he is depicted as a bungler. And there are some things that he does seem to have bungled and in other parts of it that of that narrative that break down, which we'll, we'll get into. But to start off with, the issue of his retirement is uh, very problematic because, as the FBI noted, uh, he continued to be used by the CIA on what the FBI described as an ad hoc basis. 
So he was uh, the middleman for uh, negotiations between the Mullen Company, where he was working in the CIA, and the Mullen Company was a CIA front, you know, so Hunt working with them is is notable. Um, he was also getting technical support uh, for the capers, the plumbers, different, uh, you know, black bag operations and such. He was getting, he and Liddy were getting help from the CIA. And according to David Young, the uh, guy who was higher up in the managing the, the, the plumbers, um, Hunt had a private line installed in his office for operatives and CIA contacts to reach him directly. And Young said that uh, this was connected to Hunt's role in dealing with the international drug problems because Nixon had tasked, ha- tasked him with uh, helping to create this new a new agency that would deal with the international drug problem, which seems like a very inappropriate position for <laughs> Hunt to be in, obviously. So uh, these were and these were the only people who uh, knew to call Hunt on this line. Um, CIA claims that the contacts with Hunt were terminated in August of 1971, but truth is he was in contact up until his arrest in, in mid 1972. Uh, Hunt had uh, regular tennis dates and luncheons with people that were high ranking in the CIA. In October, he had lunch with Thomas Karamasines, who was the CIA's deputy director of plans. Supposedly, this was related to the Mullen Company cover, but this is like too mundane a thing for. Uh, Karamasina is to really have been involved with. Um, so it's hard to know what that meeting was about. Uh, it's unknown, but um, it's worth uh, mentioning that in 1965, it was to the same Thomas Karamasina that Hunt reported his fake retirement back then. So Hunt already had a, a history of retiring in a fake way with the CIA. Um, and Karamasinius was his case officer. So um, there's no reason to think that the other retirement was any more uh, real than the other one. So this is uh, Hunt seems to have not left the agency and was still in connection with parts of the agency. That seems uh, that, that Hogan demonstrates this pretty clearly. and It'd be hard not to conclude that 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 he's correct about that. Yeah, and you mentioned there that the Mullen Company acted as as a cover for him, and we'll come back to that a little bit more because that was an important uh, cover story for a lot of CIA, CIA agents involved in this. But in general, I mean, going with just the facts of the case, we do see Hunt tend to bungle a lot of things, though. So was he, you know, in general just inept at his job, or or what was what was going on with him at this point? Well, these two things might be related. Uh, it, it, it seems to, there's a, it's plausible to argue that the, the not so real retirement is also uh, of a piece with the bungling issue of it. So as Hogan points out, what all of his clandestine contacts with the CIA add up to is the implication that the CIA was still Hunt's real principal during this whole time period that he's working at the White House. So if you if you understand that, then some of these famous or infamous failures of Hunt's actually, uh, it, it raises the prospect of whether they were successful or not. And, and it, rather than being failures in that, there was some, that something else happened rather than what we have been told. Um, so, for example, Hogan cites the fielding break-in, the break-in uh, into the psychiatrist's office, uh, the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg. So, uh Fielding himself believed that the notes 
from Daniel Ellsberg's file actually were photographed. So the conventional story of Watergate is that they didn't really get anything. They didn't get anything at all. Um, but if, as uh, Hogan and I believe, uh, the CIA was Hunt's real principal during this time period, then the disappearance of some of the things related to that break-in, uh, the Minox film on which the Ellsberg files were supposedly recorded, is not mysterious. It would have been given to the CIA by E. Howard Hunt and then denied to the White House under the uh, fake story that the dossier had not the dossier had not been found in the office, and this pattern would seem to fit also for other activities that Hunt was carrying out supposedly on behalf of the White House. Um, and he goes through uh, Hogan enumerates these uh, within a few months of being hired by the Nixon people. He established like a perfect record of failure just about. There's this interview with Lucien Conine where he's supposed to be uh, recording Lucien Conine, but he sticks some sort of clunky tape recorder under a couch cushion and like breaks it when he sits on it. This is such bad spy craft that uh, it, it's, it, it beggars belief, really. It doesn't seem plausible. And uh, Konin is another guy who's connected to not just the South Vietnam policy in general. Uh, he was ostensibly there to talk about like the ways that Kennedy may have been responsible for the Node NZM assassination. But Konin's a guy who was involved in aspects of the drug traffic in the in Southeast Asia, the same areas that Trump uh, or that Hunt was uh, touching upon with his new International Drug Bureau and. Uh, Drug Enforcement Bureau. Yeah, Hunt himself yeah. is tied into a ton of international drug trade stuff. It would seem so. He was at the Kunming base uh, in China, which is a, is infamous for being connected to people that would be really, uh, dealing in the heroin aspect of it. They would, pay their, agents, they would pay their agents with uh, in, in opium at certain times at that base. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, even Prouty, Prouty would talk about, talked about this. Uh, he, he even had some awareness of, of the fact that this was going on. And Conine was also a guy who helped um, who, who helped Al McCoy when Al McCoy wrote his book, which we've talked about, along with Ed Lansdale. I mean, uh, he, uh, McCoy had access to these people, which is fascinating. And this is the, you know, arguably a kind of you know, just to maybe oversimplify it, but call it a limited hangout version of the CIA role in the Southeast Asian drug traffic. Conine surfaces there as well. So this is this is fascinating. But set that aside. Uh, let's add to that the DeMott interview where Hunt is given this tip by, I think it's by Robert Bennett, uh, to go up and interview this DeMott fellow who supposedly had dirt on Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. And this is a case where Hunt is given this costume or this disguise from CIA technical services, which you wouldn't think would be necessary at all. It doesn't really make any sense what they say about it. And then he had really nothing uh, substantial, or at least as far as we know, Hunt didn't get anything from it. But there seems to be more to this story, not just a, a failure. And of course, the fielding break-in um, was uh, didn't really get anything except for they leave a lot of evidence implicating Nick, the, the the plumbers in this. They take they take almost selfies of themselves uh, and such and like pictures of the cars outside of the um, psychiatrist's office. They just basically uh, leave create a lot of evidence of their own guilt without supposedly getting anything that was useful. So this is uh, 
really something. And the way that uh, Hogan describes it, Hunt was 0 for 3, and before the affair would be over, his streak would run to 0 for 9, or so we are told. By virtue of his immaculate incompetence, he'd come to be seen as kind of a clown, a spook whose operations inevitably backfired. So this gets into how the press could call it a, a, a caper or a third-rate burglary, and the, the plumbers would just be described as bunglers. Um, and the liberal Democrats and the press uh, also were, you know, they sort of fed this idea that, like, we could just laugh at how incompetent they were. And uh, it, it allows for a very simple story to be created with the president at the center of all of this, uh, you know, criminal activity. Um, and they, the idea that these Pete and these burglars weren't actually loyal to the president didn't uh, enter into the public discourse at the time. And so uh, it's because the people that were against Nixon in the press and on the American political right and on the in the Democratic Party, um, that none of them wanted to uh, look into this issue. They didn't want to look any more deeply at it because this would raise questions about the whole affair in general. The Democrats in the press were as much opponents of a full investigation of the Watergate affair as was the White House itself. Both sides had reason to fear the truth. Um, so they, this, this was Hogan's assessment of this. And so uh, Hunt's bungling doesn't seem plausible the way that it's laid out. And again, it speaks to uh, a secret agenda of uh, the people that were involved in this whole affair. It's also worth pointing out, uh, again, because we have this common thread here, supposedly Hunt goes 0 for 9, and the same with McCord. McCord just so happens to screw up all these things. But as we talked about last time, Alan Dulles called uh, McCord one of our best men. Angleton called him an operator. And Hunt, of course, worked with Paul Helliwell in setting up the Asian drug trade and set up the World Anti-Communist League in Latin America. And none of those things seem bungled. He didn't go 0 for 10 on that stuff. And obviously, they still got caught all the time during the during those days of setting up the drug trade. And it helps to have the entire system on your side, letting all of your, your agents out all the time, every time they get locked up, moving heroin in soldiers' bodies or whatever. But at the same time, like they've been in, both been involved in so many massive operations, very high value, high stakes operations that are involved in setting up the funding for all of these other, you know, this whole network for the CIA internationally has to be funded with dark money. And when they're doing that work, they don't seem to have a problem and they can work with these like high level financial actors like Paul Helliwell in, in setting up this this whole system. But then when it comes to this, suddenly they're the most incompetent guys around. And that's just at this point, it's hard to believe, especially when you have on the record, these guys talking about how they're our best guys. If Helms is willing to tell Nixon, they're our best guys and they can vouch for them. And, and that's goes beyond just Nixon, like I said about Dulles. So I, I think it all signs point to something is wrong with this narrative if you're trying to say that it's all incompetence. Yeah, and even it, it it calls into question some of these other things about Hunt, like how he supposedly bungled the um, Cuban Bay of Pigs thing by like losing this briefcase. You've got to wonder if that is plausible in light of this other information. Um, and there's the issue of him not being unable to to quote incapacitate Ellsberg as he was ordered to do by uh, the White House and that that ends up failing as well and so you really want to wonder what um, 
you know, what, what was going on there. We can't, we're not likely to be able to completely hash that out other than to argue against the prevailing narrative. But maybe if we go back and look at his colleague uh, in the CIA uh, or not in the CIA or supposedly not in the CIA, James McCord, uh, this could help to uh, looking at the Office of Security uh, man, James McCord, that could help us to clarify things. So what does Hogan say about, uh, we talked a little bit about the Office of Security last time and how it was not a uh, you know mundane as part of the CIA that it actually dealt with very, very, very sensitive, illegal, scandalous, historically uh, amazing uh, matters that the CIA was, was doing, covert operations. So what what was what about McCord and his relationship to uh, to the top of the Office of Security? Uh, what more does Hogan have to say about this? Yeah. So as we closed out with last time, the Office of Security is kind of the uh, the dirtier side of the operation. And as Hogan is going to point out, you have sort of the more the glamorous side of it, the academic side. People like Angleton running these higher level policy analyses. We like to talk about. Um, the Paul Nitza memos and George Kennan and and these sort of broad geopolitical analyses that the CIA are providing. And that has its own form of sort of chosen incompetence, like we're talking about with Hunt, where uh, I think when it's convenient, they can get it wrong. And so we talk about things like Plan B, where there is this intentional incompetence in the in the sort of uh, the center of the organization. And then generally, they know what's really going on because they have to know how to cover it up and and lie to the people that need to be lied to to keep their agenda going. So at the core of that, there has to be some kind of network within the network, and they are involved in the dirty tricks, for lack of a better term. So as Hogan writes, uh, at the heart of many of these activities, a tabernacle within the inner sanctum was the Security Research Staff, or SRS, a cadre within the Office of Security. Headed by the late General Paul Gaynor, Watergate spy James McCord's immediate superior for many years, the SRS managed the literally mind-boggling Bluebird and Artichoke programs and coordinated many of the domestic spying activities associated with Operation Chaos and Project 2. Most important, the SRS was the primary hands-on counterintelligence unit within the CIA. Its central function was to seek out and expose security risks, as well as to identify Soviet penetration agents, uh, not only within the CIA, but also in other branches of government. It was, in other words, the vehicle for, quote, mole hunting, as much as James Angleton's counterintelligence staff was. This fact, as important as it is obscure, has gone so far gone unnoticed by writers on the subject of intelligence whose fascination with the glamorous Angleton, a poet, fly fisherman, orchidologist, and professional spinner of webs is understandable. Still, his shop was something of an ivory tower, preoccupied with strategic analyses of broad intelligence issues, whereas the OS and the SRS were in the alleys and sometimes in the gutter. Right. This, is, I, this I think, is key to understanding uh, different elements of Watergate, and some of which we will get into now and then hopefully expand on these in future episodes, and we'll ask um, Jim Hogan and Peter Del Scott about them as well. But this is some of the business that they were involved in was quite, uh, quite astounding. I mean, the, the SRS was part of the office of security. Like, like you have within the office of security itself, very uh, secretive and endowed with all sorts of prerogative powers to like maintain the secrets 
and even to, and to run operations that are also deemed of like extreme sense to be extremely sensitive. Um, and within that very, so you have the CIA, you can say, you could think of the OS, OS as kind of a CIA within the CIA. And then you could go further with that and say the SRS was the CIA within that CIA that was within the CIA. It's a Russian and, nesting doll of spooks at this point. Right. And it's, I mean, and this, I, I, I think is how with the sort of deep political system and corrupt goings on that become kind of institutionalized and brought into the state as part of the cold war, you, you do get these kind of wheels within wheels and it, uh, is obscure on purpose. I mean, they, they, this is done purposefully as parapolitics, poli practices in politics where accountability is consciously diminished. I mean, this is what they were all about. I mean, to the point of like, we will kill some people in order to prevent accountability from happening or our cover stories from being blown like Frank, the Frank Olson murder, for example, that James McCord covered up. So uh, Hogan writes that it was the whole SRS was basically immune from scrutiny uh, because of the sensitivity of its work. And uh, if a new employee was hired, we already mentioned in the past episode how they would be screened by the office of security. Um, but and this was a well-known procedure, but what was less well-known was that this information on new recruits and hires would also be routed to the SRS, the security research staff. And sometimes these could be vetoed uh, by General Gaynor and his staff, the General Gaynor, the guy that ran the SRS. Um, so they would, for example, they would compare the names of new recruits to people in Gaynor's legendary, quote, bag file. Uh, a file that consisted of details concerning more than 300,000 Americans, mostly homosexuals who had been arrested at one time or another for sexual offenses. This is how Hogan describes it. Um, and so this gets into a matter of uh, real significance in Watergate. Uh, the compilation of dossiers and files on sexual habits of certain Americans, selected Americans, um, supposedly, this is used to screen in, in people for employment at the agency, but uh, because this, you know, if you were, this isn't just pure, you know, these guys are not like enlightened people with very woke attitudes about homosexuality and so on, but this isn't the motivation for this, you know. Uh, it, ostensibly, you want to keep these files because homosexuality being especially so so taboo back then this would make these people vulnerable to blackmail okay so that's like logical and in, in a way but you know it's problematic but we we could set that aside it's not really the purview of this show to talk rail against the immorality of this or whatever but uh the other the aspect of this that i think is important is that the people that this also gives these entities their own ability to uh blackmail people themselves so they're Supposedly, it's just like the plumbers were set up to like plug leaks, right? But what do they do in, in part? They want to black bag operations so that they can get dirt, so that they can leak stuff themselves. Okay, similarly, your counter blackmail operations, uh, so, supposedly, or your operations that are undertaken to protect you against potential blackmail, these are like just a step away from being like blackmail operations, which is, you know, they do get into this. Um, you know, kind of similar, I mean, in a weird way to things we've talked about in the past, like, uh, bio defense being like almost indistinguishable when it comes down to it from bio offense, right? Like, 
or, or counterterrorism and terrorism, for example. And even within this organization, what they're doing at the time, MKUltra is billed as an, as like you're saying with biodefense, it's sort of an early version of that where they're saying, no, we're actually defending against mind control candidates. But in defense, yeah. you're just looking for mind control drugs and you end up just doing the thing that you're saying you're preventing against or bringing in people who have been doing it for decades, like, you know, Japanese and, and Nazi war criminals to do those same things for you. And I, and all of these sort of defensive, oh, anti-blackmail operations are just an extension of that, where then we, all of the evidence points to totally normal people in government and outside of it getting pulled into it for one reason or another, as we'll get to, um, to you know, be able be victim to blackmail themselves. And they can tell themselves some kind of moral story to make themselves feel better about how they're playing defense. But in the end, that has never been the way that it's functioned. No, and I don't, it, it probably, I mean, the, it gets to the bigger strategies of what U.S. empire is, but I, you, I, and I can't, you can't know about any of these individuals specifically, but people like McCord and presumably Gaynor, like they're kind of fanatically devoted to, um, you know, the mission of the American state. Like they, um, they don't, they believe that they're, they're patriotic, you know, in a, in a way that seems insane to me, but like, this is something also that comes up in this, the Watergate story. You have people that try to act actually, they're attempting to act ethically in these situations, even within like the office of security, as we'll get to either in this episode or the next one, uh, which is, which is fascinating. But uh, I think that like for certain areas, you're going to, want to get people who are more and more uh, morally, let's say, flexible and or outright immoral and kind of sinister in their own immorality and Machiavellian inclinations. So uh, this the Gainer fellow, the guy that kept the, quote, fag file, uh, worked very closely with uh, the deputy chief of the Washington, uh, D.C. Police Department, Captain Roy Blick, and Blick was a guy who, by all accounts, was sexually obsessed. Um, he was a source in the past for J. Edgar Hoover's FBI and Dulles's CIA and, uh, and for Richard Helms. He had enormous files compiled on uh, all kinds of people related to sexual deviance, supposedly including the names of every prostitute, madam, pimp, homosexual, pederast, sadomasochist, and most points in between. Um, of anybody who came to the attention of police in the country's capital. And then you'd have the seizure of trick books during police raids that because of this, the files would contain, you know, all sorts of information on prostitutes, clients, and so on. And some of those would be like congressmen, diplomats, judges, spooks, and so on. Um, so this is like, this stuff, of course, brings to mind people like Epstein or a few years before that, the Washington Madam, I mean, sexual blackmail, I think, has got to be one of the most common industries in uh, in D.C. And, and related to the, uh, you know, to the workings of the spooks. So according to Blick's subordinates, uh, this guy, this uh, deputy chief of the Washington Police Department, the guy that worked closely with SRS, uh, had Gaynor, he maintained a sex museum at his office until the time of his death. And uh, there's just a, there's a quote here that I think just has to be read in its entirety. It's not super long. There were all kinds of things, and he loved to show it off. Pornographic pictures of every sort, and he even had an automatic fucking machine. Damnedest thing I ever saw. That's from the 
police chief of Herndon, Virginia, Walter Bishop, talking about uh, the sex the sex museum, complete with automatic fucking machine quote. <laughs> so, uh, and this was something that uh, got written about. It, it came out uh, in you know semi mainstream sources. Jack Anderson reported about this. He wrote through field offices scattered around the country. The Office of Security maintains close ties with state and local police. In each field office, a black book is kept with the males and females who can be safely recruited to entertain the CIA's visitors. Um, the black book contains names, telephone numbers, details gleaned from uh, largely local vice squads. Uh, so this was, and he mentions Blick specifically saying he that Blick had, quote, a close backroom relationship with the CIA. Uh, so blackmail was another function of all this. And the Office of Security had all these safe houses uh, that would work in this capacity. We've talked a little bit about George White, Operation Midnight Climax, right? George White was a drug enforcement guy, but also CIA officer and was XOSS. He's the guy with that famous quote of like, we raped, pillaged, and killed and plundered all with the grace of the almighty. It was all such great fun. Something like that is a, is a more or less direct quote from George White. Uh, he would watch people uh, taking acid and having sex with prostitutes and being videotaped uh, in San Francisco. And so this, the SRS uh, and people directly around McCord and Gaynor uh, were involved in all of this. And uh, this is, I think, uh, speaks to the sensitivity of, of everything that was going on. And it also reveals standard operating procedures in the national security state that are so criminal that in comparison, you know, Nixon's discussion on the smoking gun tape is so is very pedestrian and that um, seems more like a, a peccadillo, you know, compared to these other these other aspects that were going on all the time. So this is like when Nixon says, when the president does it, it's not illegal. Uh, you know, you, we can quibble about that. And I personally think that we should have the U.S. should follow international law and the presidents should the government should follow the Constitution and so on. But at, at what point ha, does is it so obvious that the U.S. does not follow the Constitution and that the U.S. does not follow international law and thus breaks domestic law with treaties that we've ratified that we have to change our our, our way of thinking about? Uh, you know, the law in terms of trying to evaluate our leaders. So, you know, this and this sex business is like, how, it doesn't get much dirtier than that. It's hard to say that the the national, the deep, the deep state, the establishment in Washington uh, doesn't operate more on like a mafia basis uh, when it comes down to it. And the irony should not be lost that um, a lot of these guys spend so much time and are able to countenance just the most immoral or amoral behavior I mean, all the way down to using child prostitutes because they think of it as an us versus them ideology of we're in this existential battle against backwards cultures. And they they see this sort of, uh, you know, uh, there's so much embedded racism here against the third world and and so much concern about, you know, the commies, whatever, like turning your kids gay or, or whatever it is that they're on about at this point. But it's always something, uh, you know, uh, that has to do with this idea of we're upholding God and freedom against these backwards cultures. And then they use just any means possible to where, I, I mean, whatever they're imagining, which obviously is not actually what's going on on the other end of the uh, other side of the coin there, uh, they end up doing it themselves and and bringing that into the world. Some of just the most awful stuff imaginable uh, and they can excuse it to themselves and 
I think Nick Bryant has talked about this lately of how William Colby uh, expressed regret in the end, not for anything else that he did as CIA director, but only for using child prostitutes for for blackmail operations. And that was that was a bridge too far for his his Catholicism. But a lot of these guys have this sort of fundamentalist belief set and then can compromise it at every turn specifically to battle whatever, you know, for the, the defense of the nation and everything. But in the end, I mean, I, I think there's a lot more guys like George White than they'd like to admit where at base, this is just fun for them. And it's fun to have state sanctioned, you know, raping and pillaging to to use George White's term. Yeah, I mean, there's I think that they they have a, a big tent of immoral people. Uh, some of them, like McCord, uh, are would justify their their immoral acts on the basis of like you know a, a biblical and metaphysical patriotism. Uh, you know, like his crazy business about the Bible quotes about a piece of tape and so on. Uh, and then you have the more crass people like David. I was to say David Harvey, William Harvey. Sorry, David Harvey. I mean William Harvey and uh, George White or. Uh, David Morales, you know, is another guy who seems just like a killer. So, uh, you know, there's a whole uh, spectrum of characters during this time period. It's a, a fascinating time period. I think more than today, I've got to say nowadays, these new these people running this, the visible part of the spy agencies, these characters are so boring. They're either uh, generic uh, officials that are kind of interchangeable and totally in, not memorable or uh, there's the occasional vocal crazy person like John Cipher on Twitter who's like, you know, channeling uh, Dwayne, Clair Dwayne Dewey Claridge and uh, so on. But like, it's just th this this era of uh, U.S. history is more interesting because it's not as consolidated and bureaucratic and boring. Um, it's just it's more disturbing and uh, there's there's more human drama in it because there's more things that you can actually see. So this this aspect of it is just is wild. It really becomes the Wild West for a long time here. And uh, and one of the craziest stories in in all of Secret Agenda has to do with this guy, Lee Pennington, who himself was a part of the security research staff. So if you want to talk a little bit about this Pennington business. Yeah, and this Pennington uh, episode, it comes up in Scorpion's Dance, the Jefferson Morley book. Um, and I think that he doesn't, Marley has a different take on this than me. He's a little more, um, he doesn't have the suspicions about like McCord wanting to get arrested and so on. Whereas I'm agnostic about this. Uh, he, it's, it's interesting because Morley has more facts at his, on his side, but I think he, overall, he doesn't have the same kind of analysis that Peter Dale Scott or I would have about it. And so it's, uh, he, he doesn't, he fleshes out some of the Pennington stuff without, uh, without analyzing it in the same way that I would. So I'll, uh, and we're, we're going to talk about this with Peter later. So there's some aspects of this that we won't get into, but the basics of what the, the Pennington story is that a couple days after the, um, fought the arrest of the plumbers, uh, there's a conflagration at James McCord's home the afternoon of, uh, Wednesday or Thursday, June 21st or 22nd. And among those present was at this fire was a former top ranking official of the FBI, uh, Lee Pennington Jr., who was 76 years old at the time. Uh, he was at the time director of the Washington office of the very right wing American Security Council. 
which to me raises red flags because uh, of uh, someone who's read a lot of Peter Dell Scott's work. He points to them as this right wing think tank that's created, uh, you know, around the time, if I recall correctly, the NSC 68 and this big buildup of, um, uh, and I think they were after the Committee on the Present Danger, but they're like shortly, you know, in the in the 1950s, they emerge as a uh, counterweight or to the Council on Foreign Relations. So for the people who were not, who felt the Council on Foreign Relations was not right wing enough, basically, that's the American Security Council. And so if you are someone like me, you think like, well, the Council on Foreign Relations is like the, they created the whole U.S. empire to begin with. Um, and so who could be in the one of the CIA and everything else? And Alan Dulles was the vice president of the Council on Foreign Relations when they planned the whole U.S. empire, you know, with the War and Peace Studies Project. So how do you get more right wing than that? But that's just it. They were, they represented the military industrial complex and big oil and a lot of the forces in American politics that became empowered once the U.S. makes the decision to set up the military industrial complex and the permanent war economy as a way to solve all kinds of economic problems and really kick off the Cold War uh, and even go for like rollback. That's what these people were interested in, not even containment of communism. But they took all the rhetoric about the Cold War and they took it and sincerely believed it, apparently, or believed it because it was going to mean a lot of money for them and wanted to set up, uh, you know, different institutions to promote right-wing thinkers. So they would have been the kind of people that would have backed like Ronald Reagan and Scoop Jackson. Uh, so uh, they were kind of like a, early, a proto-neocon type of entity. So the fact that this guy is from those circles is notable. In other words, these are the same people that benefit in large part from Watergate and walk away the winners and, and are able to set up the Reagan revolution as the result of the fall of like the Nixon world of sort of more liberal minded Republicans that we, as we've been talking about, these are the same extractivist and heavy industry, military industrial complex interests that, like you said, back Reagan, but also are the people who turn on Nixon because of the taunt and everything. And we start to see the sort of a, the formulation of a, uh, of a coalition here that goes after Nixon as a, as a result of his and Kissinger's ambitions. Well, and every, but the, well, let's say Kissinger aside for a second, Nixon also alienates the other parts of this. So Nixon also alienates not not only are these right wing people like the people that would have supported the American Security Council against Nixon, you know, like the people who are anti detente uh, and the, the these really right wing elements that would back Reagan. But also Nixon lost the support of Rockefeller in key respects. I mean, Nixon was doing things that were directly opposite of the trilat what the trilateral commission was created to do and the trilateral commission is created right around this time so nixon if you look at these things you see how nixon lost the support of the american security council right-winger crowd the group that's to the right of the council on foreign relations but also the council on foreign relations crowd that part of the establishment the you could call them the traitors you could call them the neoliberals but these are the these are people that by my reckoning, and as I lay out an American exception, they were the forces that created the uh, U.S. empire. They planned it and so on. And there was a consensus at the time in American politics, and it kind of breaks down, but it breaks down in a right-wing way to where like your more powerful opposition is this American Security Council types and these right-wingers. Uh, and so it's when the way Watergate shakes down, yes, the Reagan revolution and the defense buildup, even that begins under Jimmy Carter, you can see how these forces 
uh, were empowered by getting rid of Nixon, but also the the Rockefeller uh, mainstream liberal Republican side also. And then if you when you get more into Watergate as well, you'll see some of the characters are related to the Kennedys that are involved in investigating some of these things like Carmine Bellino. So Nixon had different parts of the had most had the whole had major swaths of the establishment turn against him. And the Kennedy Democrats weren't especially powerful, but like if with they with them joining in the Nixon pylon, uh, this is why Nixon gets defeated. And so this Pennington thing, I don't want to put too much on this one particular American Security Council angle. It's just to say that he was connected to more right forces that were to the right of Richard Nixon, just as James McCord was. Uh, himself, any e. Howard Hunt. These are all people. The people that brought him down were people. A lot of them were to the right of Nixon politically, uh, and this is complicates any idea of Watergate as being a victory for liberalism and the rule of law and so on. So, to just to get back to the security research staff, okay. So, and and Pennington's relationship to it. He was a contract agent for the SRS. Pennington was. And in a very secretive way, he only reported to three people, uh, Paul Gaynor and then two case officers. And his contract, uh, as Hogan points out, was oral rather than written. He filed no written reports and was paid by means of sterile checks, meaning that they couldn't be traced to the CIA. And his affiliation to the agency was unknown to anyone outside of the ultra-secretive SRS, including the CIA's own director, um, which is you know, pretty spectacular. So the, the, the Pennington incident is, uh, relevant to McCord because, and, and the, the bigger story, because he's recruited by when Pennington comes to the CIA, he was actually recruited by McCord, who was a good bit younger than him, uh, in the early 1950s. This is when Pennington was serving as the American Legion's, uh, the director of the American Legion's National Americanism Commission. Uh, and in that role, he held, he worked with McCord to identify people potentially applying to the CIA who might be politically suspect because uh, the American Legion was actually keeping tabs on everyone, creating a watch list of everyone. Uh, and so this is, uh, you know, remarkable. The American Legion would be involved in something like this. I think American Legion people, if you go back, they may have been even involved in the business plot, although I could be misremembering that. I know the Liberty Lobby was, but also I think that the Amer the plan was to use the American Legion as well. So this is a right-wing organization uh, from the very beginning. Um, and, and that, so Pennington's connection to these people, uh, very much relevant. So when Pennington, a couple days after the arrest of McCord, he goes to McCord's house. And uh when he shows up there, he finds McCord, McCord's wife standing in front of the fireplace, destroying every bit of paper in McCord's office. And the reason for this, she says that McCord tells her um, that, OK, there was a bomb threat supposedly called in, which is dubious because they say it was from Houston, Texas. But if it's an anonymous threat, how would you know where it came from? So the, the, the veracity of this threat is problematic to begin with. But then the the. The way it relates to the fire is that, well, McCord thought that if there is a bomb, then you have all these papers around and paper can burn. So we better just destroy everything that is made of paper, you know, because I got arrested. Um, so this makes uh, it's not plausible at all. 
But, uh, you know, what do you do when that's the story that they're putting forward? Um, and the so this whole story is very weird, but nobody ever asks uh, the, the the urban commission committee who's investigating this. They don't ask McCord about it. So um, there's every reason to believe that he was just destroying potentially important evidence. And uh, this is how um, Hogan looks at this. Now, what else is significant about this is the only reason that we know about it at all about the whole Pennington incident is because of the FBI investigation, which is the interesting parts about Watergate. There are some parts where events are investigated really well, and then they're just out there and they might produce information that cannot be reconciled with the bigger narrative. Uh, and that uh, and hashing that out is a good bit of what uh, Hogan has done with his book. But it's only because of two CIA employees, especially uh, in the FBI investigation, that uh, two Office of Security employees basically left a record of the whole Pennington incident because uh, they learned uh, the Bureau, the FBI learned that somebody named Pennington had uh, driven uh, McCord to his home following his release on bail. And um, so the FBI basically figured out that he was a former CIA colleague of McCord's, McCord's and possibly a supervisor. Although he can end up being that being the opposite, more or less. Um, and this this inquiry of the FBI uh, generated real alarm within the Office of Security because Pennington was regarded as super sensitive source, uh, and then it would damage the CIA if he were if they had to give him to the FBI. But Pennington himself had been number three at the FBI and worked under Hoover and even was trusted with pre preparing Hoover's tax returns. So he's a guy who was a, a loyal you know, agent of the FBI in the past. Um, and it's they don't ever explain what Pennington was doing all the time. Like Gaynor uh, was testified to that he really did nothing but like clip newspapers and um, he bought a copy of the congressional directory and hadn't been given a single assignment since 1969. But he still met regularly with his case officer and with General Gaynor and was paid by all these checks. So it's very strange. What Hogan writes is that um, in the, the CIA responded to the FBI's inquiry um, and, uh, by giving the Bureau the name of a different Pennington, not Lee, but Cecil. And this guy, Cecil, was a retired employee of uh, the Office of Security that had nothing to do with Watergate and couldn't have driven McCord anywhere at the time. Uh, he had an alibi. Real HW heads will also think of how there's another George Bush that gets uh, gets connected to the JFK assassination, too. Right. This is this is almost the exact same scenario where they're asking about somebody who's sensitive for whatever reason, and they give them um, a fake answer. Except in this case, and, and Peter has read other authors who make a big deal about this. This was uh, a crime, quote unquote, because you're not supposed to lie to the FBI. Okay, and this is uh, problematic because the CIA was lying to the FBI. Now, if you start looking at the body of work of the CIA and the FBI, and you would say, aha, the CIA has committed a crime, and that is that it lied to the FBI. Well, that's, you know, uh, an interesting thing to fixate upon in the midst of all these other crimes. It's kind of like uh, busting, I mean, it's, it's worse than Al Capone going down for tax evasion, right? It's just like, okay, why, why seize on that? But anyway, they did lie to the FBI. But what's more interesting for our purposes is why they would have. So the only reason that we know about this, as we say, is this: these two security uh, office officials 
and who wanted to uh, clarify this because they were given a uh, a memo uh, to get to make sure that no documents that pertain to Watergate were destroyed, and they um, so they were not wanting to be a party to going against any sort of um, law like this or any sort of directive like this because you know the the office of security is supposed to hire guys who are very meticulous about security and don't have like a casual attitude about the chain of command and you know and and also is the legality and constitutionality of things like they think that they're actually protecting the laws of the country and so on and so uh you it's it's interesting it's no you have to take note of the people that actually act in this kind of of a manner because it complicates the what we want to think of uh, the, the CIA doing. It's easy to paint them as purely villainous. And most of the time you won't go wrong with that assumption, but they're also made up of individuals who do believe that they're dedicated to the, serving the national security of the United States. Uh, and so that's, that appears to be what happened here. And the only reason that we know about this uh, is related to, uh, I mean, not just the two guys, their own work and, and keeping a record of this, but Richard Helms, he decided to destroy all those records pertaining to uh, the CIA's mind control and drug experiments and to burn all the tapes and transcripts that he had made during his time as uh, the director of the CIA. Uh, this was the CIA's, quote, central recording system. OK, and it was more than 4000 pages that were destroyed. And Helms gets rid of all of this uh, around the time that he's leaving, you know, which is pregnant with implication. Why, what does he know about this? So um, what now is the relevance of this related to, is this related to Watergate, the destruction, Helms destruction of all these files? Well, it seems that it has some things in common, like the the use of prostitutes in uh, MK ultra programs and in the whole Watergate affair. Um, The one aspect that we haven't talked about, but uh, which is relevant, the CIA was sending Hunt and other people to create these like psychological machines, like sort of profiles on people that might allow uh, to allow them to predict the behavior of certain political actors. So there is a mind control and sex, you know, sex blackmail angle to all this. Uh, but Helm's decision to destroy all those files, all those materials were taken in defiance of a January 18, 1973 letter from Senator Mike Mansfield to a bunch of government agencies, including the CIA, uh, as Hogan writes, the Mansfield letter ordered that all materials having to do with the Watergate affair be preserved pending the Senate's scheduled hearings on the subject. So uh, whenever this does come out about Helms destroying all these things, the reaction was predictable. Uh, They said people thought that Helms was guilty of destroying evidence. Uh, Helms said that it didn't have anything to do with Watergate. And for people on the other side, you would say, well, how are you going to possibly prove that? It sure does seem like you're very guilty. Right. And as I said back in part one, uh, Helms testifies and essentially says, well, I thought about how we destroyed all those tapes. And then it hit me. No one would know if I was lying except me and my secretary. And so Representative Nedzi replies, well, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, you also can't prove that all the tapes weren't Watergate related if you don't have anybody else who's a witness. Yeah, it's really, uh, I mean, it, it's about as plausible as McCord, McCord's explanation about, oh, the, there might have been a fire in the future, so I had to burn all my, my papers. I mean, we all know paper burns, which it's true that paper is flammable, but uh, I don't think that that explains it all. Um, so to go forward a little bit to uh, how this count comes out, 
August of 1973, which is a year after uh, some of this business about Pennington first surfaces in the CIA, the new CIA director, William Colby, orders uh, Watergate materials prepared for him. And these conscientious security officers, we don't know who they are because Hogan doesn't put them in the book. Um, he gets told by a supervisor to exclude the Pennington material from the file, such as it was. Uh, and then even later than that, January of 1974, a year after Helms orders, the taping records are destroyed and so on. Um, CIA announced it was going to review all of its Watergate files. And uh, they tell this, they're told again, the security office is told, remove the Pennington files and maintain them separately. So what's notable about this is um, Lee Pennington was of profound concern to top officials in the OS, Office of Security. His identity, his participation in the bonfire at McCord's house had, was concealed not just from the FBI, but also from the new CIA director, William Colby, and from the inspector general of the CIA as well. Uh, and so this security officer was eventually supposed to sign something to the effect that all the materials had been turned over. So he contacted legal counsel and said, should I sign this if it's not true? Because I, you know, I had these memos that I put away, like explaining my uh, objections to the way that they're handling all this. And uh, I, I don't feel right about this. And so they were told he was told not to sign this. Um, and so the the security officer and his colleague um, copied all of this stuff related to Pennington, including this August 72 memo uh, and placed it in sealed envelopes marked for the director's eyes only expecting to be fired. They then placed these envelopes in their personal safes. So then a month later, uh, the statement, this, these statements were uncovered. Um, and so this basically oh, when they're going, we're going through this whole process of like whether this, this stuff should be revealed or not. Uh, eventually, these two security officers do allow this memo to surface and more of the story uh, comes out. So this, uh, the reason that all of this is significant, and I hope that this is like something that people can follow because I'm trying to uh, condense it here uh, in a digestible form, hopefully not making it more confusing <laughs> rather than less confusing. So I, I think that Hogan's summary of this a couple paragraphs and it's it's worth reading and it's it's an assessment that still holds up to this day uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, the general questions raised by it. So he said that it's significant for several reasons. To begin with, an informational memorandum prepared over the signature of Howard Osborne specifically states that Pennington helped to destroy McCord's files in order to eradicate any evidence of a connection between McCord and the CIA. What is most meaningful about this is the fact that McCord's past connection to the CIA was already a matter of public record. Indeed, the front page of the public record at the time that Pennington fed the flames in McCord's home. The inference then is obvious and unavoidable. Since McCord's past connection to the CIA was well known at the time, the only purpose to be served by destroying McCord's files in June 1972 was to eliminate evidence of an ongoing clandestine relationship between the CIA and the recently jailed spook. Cover-up of the Pennington incident is important also for what it suggests, either in its own right or in conjunction with other evidence. Internal CIA documents make reference to the fact that Pennington repeatedly briefed his case officer on McCord's situation vis-a-vis -vis Watergate, and that Pennington provided the security research staff with investigative reports about Jack Anderson that McCord had prepared on the basis of Lou Russell's information. We'll come back and talk more about Lou Russell uh, in, in the future. 
It appears then that Lee R. Pennington was McCord's cutout to the security research staff, so too as evidenced by the deliberate concealment of the Pennington incident from the CIA's own director and inspector general, it is clear that a secret agenda was at work within the CIA, a second track or runaway operation to which only a select few, for example, General Gaynor, were privy. And I think that that's, that, that put, sums up a lot of the mystery about this and the significance of it. Why were they trying to, why is it, was it so important to cover up McCord's relationship to the CIA when this was already well known? Right. And as we'll get to next time, I think there's a much bigger network at play here that runs outside of the CIA. But I think Hogan makes a great case and just makes it very, very obvious that the CIA is plotting against Nixon at this point. And there's no question about it. There's no, uh, you know, it's just very clear that there is a circle within the inner circle, just the the absolute tightest, you know, highest security, the middle of the nesting doll. And they're the ones that are invested in in taking down Nixon or at least sabotaging his ability to act in his second term. And as we'll get to, I think there's a, a Peter's um, theory goes beyond Hogan's to the idea that there's sort of a anti-detente coalition that has come together to try and get rid of Nixon. But that is a much bigger story that has to do with Woodward and with Alexander Haig and everybody else. But to that point about Haig, there's uh, the, near the end of of Secret Agenda, he brings up the way that as Nixon's tapes get out, and that's really, you know, the smoking gun tape is what finally brings him down and brings this whole thing to a close rather than letting him, as we've said, maybe if the tapes don't come out, he's able to just do the same things Helms does and uh, and get away with it. But he ends up having it come out and that just tanks his, his chances. And so as Hogan points out, uh, if the tapes coming out is treated as an error, it wasn't really of Nixon's own making. So Pat Buchanan, uh, who people are probably familiar with, urged Nixon to destroy the tapes from the moment that people knew they existed because of, uh, of Butterfield. But others on Nixon's staff, principally Alexander Haig, counseled against doing so and prevailed. In any event, the tapes were not the only smoking gun in evidence at the time. In June 1974, Alexander Haig, who was the White House chief of staff, had ordered the Army's Criminal Investigation Command to make a study of the president's alleged ties to organized crime and also to the smuggling of gold bullion to Vietnam. And that comes up one other time, and that's why we're talking about this at, at this point, is that one of the notes that gets burned uh, and, and is referring to Lee Pennington that, that they come across, Charles Colson, who took a lot of heat from the CIA for his investigation, in his notes uh, has a note about Lee Pennington and a reference to an operation involving the smuggling of gold bullion to Southeast Asia. So I think Peter has done a lot of great work on, on this gold angle. Aaron, if you just want to cover to close us out here, what is it referring to here with the, this uh, angle of, uh, of gold smuggling into Vietnam or Southeast Asia? Right. I mean, this part is kind of pregnant with implication, even if you can't go very far with it, because Watergate is full of these mysteries that never get, uh, you know, totally explained because they just there was no investigatory body that was going to do it. But the emergence of gold in a couple of different points related to Pennington, but also related to that report put together by um, Haig and Fred Buzzhart was the another who tried to sabotage you. Buzz Hart. Okay. And Buzz Hart, Buzz Hart. Yeah. Buzz Hart, the same guy that tells him not to destroy the tapes, uh, which is 
the worst advice you could possibly give. And then, uh, you know, his involvement with this other report, you're thinking like, these are the guys working for Nixon. Why is Nixon's chief of staff putting together, you know, a a report on very explosive anti-Nixon information and using the government in this capacity? This is really remarkable. And talking about Haig, uh, at one point, Woodward actually just works under Alexander Haig. And then we end up, you know, Woodward ends up at the heart of this whole thing. So I, I think it's very clear that Haig has his own uh, private agenda, as it were, um, to to sabotage Nixon and make sure that he doesn't get rid of the tapes and he's compiling this evidence for his own reasons. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can't rec- – there are questions about how much Haig was briefed by Woodward at different points in the past or what the exact relationship is. But they were in similar circles, which is relevant. And rather he had a, rather he had a private – I don't think this – I think this is probably how you meant it not so much a private angle in this, but like that he was acting on behalf of anti-Nixon forces. Uh, so he wasn't there working as the chief of staff loyally serving the president. And this is where this get, gets into a lot of things with Watergate, where it's like, we're talking about it being a CIA plot, but then after you fire Helms, the directors of the CIA are actually trying, it seems like they're trying to do things to help Nixon, Colby. And I mean, but Colby allows this Pennington thing to surface. Colby even later goes after people like Angleton and so on. Schlesinger compiles the family jewels. Um, there's a lot of people fired and, and such under Schlesinger. So you see that the, the, the CIA, it can't just be put as a CIA institutional thing. It has to be forces outside of the CIA that the CIA and people like Helms answer to. And when you, when this gold angle comes in, uh, this is a very mysterious part of the the history of the Cold War, the history of post-World War II era, because a major part of what the Japanese did, and but the Germans did this as well, there was a lot of looting that went on and a lot of gold, uh, very, very valuable uh, material rec- looted and plundered and you know concentrated in different areas that the U.S., acquires and there's never a full accounting of all of this. So some of this money uh in the uh in the Europe goes into funding uh like secret OPC slash CIA operations, probably funding things like Gladio, you know, all of these secret slush funds and networks of financing to fund covert operations managed by presumably the CIA, but for a time in some kind of state of flux controlled by who knows what. Uh, Peter speculates that uh, he doesn't speculate when he talks about what I mean is he talks about the World Commerce Corporation setting up the drug traffic in Southeast Asia in the aftermath of World War II, and that it's uncertain where the funding came to uh, handle these operations. And one of the possible uh, sources, two of them are related to the post-war gold recovery, Uh, whether it was Nazi gold or Japanese gold, either way that this may have been like uh, something that they had access to. And this whole discovery of the Japanese gold was as Sterling Seagrave writes and Chalmers Johnson, you know, wrote a, a favorable review of this. Edward Lansdale in the Philippines discovered massive amounts of Japanese uh, loot from the, from their Imperial period that they had really run roughshod over Europe or I'm sorry, over East Asia, different parts of East Asia for 50 years um, and they had especially, you know, been going after China for a couple decades and, you know, looting all of these places to the extent that they could. 
And uh, a lot of this money gets buried in the Philippines, all this gold, because there's a blockade around the uh, Philippines. And so this was a part of what happened during during the war. And this there's never been an accounting of this. And so for the gold to surface in part in that report that they're talking about, that Nixon is presented with near the very end of his presidency, uh, you know, by Haig and Buzz Hart, his supposedly people working for him, um, that all people who were also involved in the disclosure of the taping system. I mean, honestly, if Nixon had destroyed the tapes, they probably had other copies of them. But the problem would have been, how do you explain how there were other copies of them if after Nixon destroyed them without revealing that there was a, a real CIA hand throughout the whole thing? And of course, most famously or infamously, if you follow this so closely, you know that the guy who revealed the existence of the taping system was purportedly... I mean, CBS reported that he was a CIA, uh, a CIA man under CIA cover. Um, the, the guy's Butterfield, Alex Butterfield, right? And th- this story is contested because of its convoluted uh, chain of events. But what the reason it was reported by Daniel Shore was that Fletcher Prouty had told Daniel Shore this. Fletcher Prouty was a high-ranking guy, you know, he's ex from Oliver Stone's JFK. Um, but he was a high ranking person and he was told that the man in the white house who was the CIA guy, it was Butterfield. And he was told this by E Howard Hunt even, but I believe that the original source of this was before any of the Watergate stuff went down and Prouty remembered this. And so I, I have to suspect that Prouty was accurately conveying this later Hunt denied it. But I mean, by the time Hunt's denying it, his wife has been killed and he's you know, it's questionable as to where he's going to be for the rest of his life. So I, I tend to think Butterfield was C- was connected to the CIA and that he did sabotage Nixon under somebody's orders. And uh, the, the issues of the slush funds that Nixon had at his disposal, people think that those may have been related to uh, this these uh, illicit funds in East Asia and Nixon's connections to the China lobby. Uh, the fact that these were used likely used in part to reestablish the drug trade and then Nixon declares more on drugs. It's a, it's a fascinating, but ultimately indecipherable uh, historical episode that um, it, it's, it just speaks to the uh, sprawling deep state and deep political institutions uh, that prevailed uh, as a, as part of the U S empire in the way that the regime actually worked. And, uh, to me, it's the fact that it's notable to note that we can't say more definitive about these very important issues, because to me, that seems like parapolitics in a nutshell, that it is the uh, way that politics and history can unfold by people with uh, enough power and wherewithal to conceal their own responsibility. And we're left to pick over the details and try to ascertain what happened as best we can, uh, kind of fumbling blindly almost at times. So this, this gold issue is fascinating and I'd love to be able to tell people exactly how it plays. It's relevant, but you know, all I can do is point to these other episodes and, and say, this can't be coincidental, even if I can't totally explain it. We plan to do at least one more episode on secret agenda before we have uh, Peter and Jim Hogan talk to us. So uh, stay tuned for that. And um, when we do do a monthly Zoom call to handle questions from listeners, if there's aspects of the Watergate uh, material that are uh, interesting or confusing to you, uh, you can pose us a question and we'll try to answer it as best we can. Um, this is 
always a, a Byzantine subject. And I know because I got lost in it for one whole summer, but I actually like to look things up. And so any questions you might have might even be helpful to uh, other listeners, but also to me even to go back and like look things up because these things are, are uh, confusing even to, any, to somebody who spends all his time on this. In fact, I, one of the things I want to ask Hogan when he does come on is, how he possibly kept all this stuff organized uh, when he was writing about it. Cause I, I found it so daunting when I did it myself. And even now, as we go over it, it's really, um, it, it's such a, a, a complex and rich subject that uh, it's, it's, it's the demanding thing to, to look at. So hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you shortly again, as we revisit the subject. Thank you very much, Seamus, for, for joining us today as well. Thank you, everybody. That's a wrap for this one. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and Mock Orange for providing the music. I'm excited to be putting out more Watergate material along with the Empire and the Deep State series, as well as the 9-11 stuff we have in the pipeline, all coming up pretty soon. Okay, that is all to say, let's keep minding the darkness.